Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, August 27th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. Hurricane Laura, a powerful Category 4 storm making landfall in Louisiana. Unrest growing in America. White 17-year-old is charged with first-degree murder after allegedly taking aim at protesters in Kenosha. And at the Republican National Convention, Mike Pence making his case for the president, while a series of crises engulfed the nation. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. And we begin with this, Hurricane Laura making landfall overnight as a strong Category 4 packing winds of about 150 miles per hour, one of the strongest storms to ever impact the U.S. Grecia Lastra has the latest on the hurricane's path. Hurricane Laura slamming the Gulf Coast, making landfall in the overnight and early morning hours near Cameron, Louisiana. Only about 36 miles from where Rita made landfall 15 years ago. I think you're safe because you made it through Rita in southwest Louisiana. Understand this storm is going to be more powerful. Laura blasted ashore with 150 mile per hour winds, causing power outages to more than 290,000 people in Texas and Louisiana. 20 feet of storm surge predicted in parts of the Gulf Coast. This is dangerous, dangerous storm surge. And, and in some cases here, you look at some of these values, it's not survivable. Late last night, those who refused to evacuate were told to stay put and off the roads. Folks, this is not survivable. We're bracing for a challenge after we see this extremely destructive storm come through. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for U News. And for more on the impact on Louisiana so far, let's go to Pedro Rojas, who's standing by in the community of Lake Charles. Pedro. Well, yes, indeed. Definitely the damages in Lake Charles are very large, very large. And let's just look a little bit about what happened here. Power lines down, trees down, no power at all in the entire city. Uh, many folks are affected. And let me just show you a little bit about the reality that, that is happening here. This is a, tree, a street that leads into downtown Lake Charles. But let's talk to, about what it's the reality for the re, for the residents with a local uh, resident here. Let me get your name. Tiana Stevens. Tiana Stevens. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your place. How's your house? How you cope well, with what happened here? Well, my house is fine. Everything was just like you could hear the wind. A little water got in, but not that much. And I seen the destroy the building behind me. It was just destroyed. The roof blew off and everything. And it's just nails and everything lost power. And we lost our water. So we just have no resources right now. Gotcha. Anyone injured around? Um, no, I don't think anybody's injured. I think everybody's okay. I've seen everybody walk around that stage, so I think everybody's okay for right now. Now, the question that many people will be asking across the country, what's next? How, what's going to be life for you guys in the next few weeks? Hopefully they fix things back and everything gets back together or better than, you know, what it is now. Hopefully we'll be prepared next time. Well, thank you very much for chatting with us and we wish you the best. Thank you. As you can see, this is a reality for not only her, but the entire community here in Lake Charles. And as we can see, just to give you an idea how bad this is, this is an apartment complex that has been totally destroyed. And like this, many buildings across the city in Lake Charles are being affected by what it was, Laura, a tropical storm, hurricane 
really strong hurricane that now it's moving into the country in the Midwest. Back to you. Thank you, Pedro, for that live report. And three days after the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, authorities are speaking out identifying the officer who shot him. This is a teenager who self-describes as a militia member was arrested after shooting two people during a night of protest. Lorraine Casares has all the details. Kenosha, Wisconsin, authorities speaking out, identifying the officer who shot 29-year-old Jacob Blake at least seven times into his back. The shooting officer, Kenosha police officer Rustin Chesky has been a law enforcement officer with the Kenosha Police Department uh, for seven years. On Sunday evening, police officers responded after a female called 911 stating her boyfriend was on the premises without permission. Officers attempted to arrest Blake. Law enforcement deployed a taser to attempt to stop Mr. Blake. Uh, but the taser was not successful in stopping him. Video of a witness capturing what happened after. Police following and pointing their guns at Blake, seen walking around an SUV, opening the driver's side door as Officer Shesky tries to stop him. Blake then seen bending forward into the vehicle and Officer Shesky immediately firing. During the investigation following the initial incident, uh, Mr. Blake admitted that he had a knife in his possession. Uh, and DCI agents, that's the Division of Criminal Investigation, uh, recovered a knife from the driver's side floorboard of Mr. Blake's vehicle. Blake's lawyer suggesting he was trying to leave the scene and explaining that according to witnesses, he was initially trying to break up a confrontation that had nothing to do with him. To even imagine uh, that Jacob was on his way to start an altercation with the police and that that's what he was doing with his three little boys in the car as they were celebrating the eight-year-old Israel's birthday. That's just not the facts. As more details emerge, residents of Kenosha protesting on Wednesday, demanding justice for the fourth night in a row. But self-identified militia members also hitting the streets armed with long guns. This video shot on Tuesday night showing 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse moments before shooting two people dead and injuring a third. Before that shooting, officers heard sharing water with the militia members and then thanking them for their help. We appreciate you guys, we really do. The suspect now charged with murder. Moments after the shooting, he is seen on this video walking right past police with his hands up. Meanwhile, the world of sports standing in solidarity with Jacob Blake. On Wednesday, the NBA forced to postpone all three of their playoff games after the Milwaukee Bucks announced they would not play. When we take the court and represent Milwaukee and Wisconsin, we are expected to play at a high level, give maximum effort and hold each other accountable. We are demanding the same from lawmakers and law enforcement. Their decision sparking a chain reaction. Other major sports following suit. The WNBA, Major League Baseball, and soccer all postponing their games. I think the most difficult part is to see like people still don't care. Being a black man in America is not easy. On Tuesday, Los Angeles Clippers coach Doc Rivers delivering a passionate call for equality. We keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. And 
It's just, it's really so sad. President Obama weighing in, saying on Twitter, I commend the players on the Bucks for standing up for what they believe in. Coaches like Doc Rivers and the NBA and WNBA for setting an example. It's going to take all our institutions to stand up for our values. And the future of the NBA is now in question. The players have met, but a decision has not been announced. Now, regarding the investigation, the Department of Justice is confirming that a civil rights inquiry is underway in uh, Jacob Blake's shooting. And meanwhile, Jacob Blake remains hospitalized with severe injuries to his spinal cord. Now, the White House is responding to reports that the 17-year-old that was arrested for shooting two people, shooting three people and killing two well, apparently attended a Trump rally in January. Kelly and Conway responding to that saying that they're not responsible. The president is not responsible for the actions of private citizens. We also know he turned himself into police in Antioch, Illinois, just across the border from Wisconsin on Wednesday morning. Carolina, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that live report. And joining me now is Mark Claxton. He's the director of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance and also a retired NYPD detective. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Now, authorities have released few details of what happened during that confrontation between Blake and police officers, only releasing the name of one of the officers, but there's been no other information. How unusual is that? Up until this point, it's been pretty much a traditional, typical governmental response to these type of shootings. You have the immediate calls for patience and calm. You have uh, the government officials saying how they express their concern about what happened, how they pledge uh, to achieve justice for the family and for the community. And then they begin this process of this long and arduous journey of an investigation. And investigation really is a, is, a, is a subjective type of term because what they're doing, what's, being ta what's taking place right now can take several months, sometimes even years, and it's still, we're still not sure exactly what the terms of the investigation are or what will result, uh, uh, what will come about as a result of the investigation that's supposedly being conducted right now. Now, the Wisconsin Attorney General said investigators found a knife in Blake's car does that justify the actions of the police officer? Absolutely not. I think uh, you have to look at these circumstances in the totality. You have to examine the beginning of the interaction. What was the initial reaction by the police officers? Was it excessive? Did, did, it, did it broach even criminality, if you will? Keep in mind that as Mr. Uh, Blake was walking away, you had two allegedly professionally trained police officers with their guns unholstered, pointed at Mr. at Mr. Blake. So obviously they're going to have to explain what was the level of threat that was present at that point that caused them even to have their guns out and pointing towards Mr. Blake uh, during the, the entire interaction of him walking away and heading towards the car. The, the knife, uh, the alleged knife that allegedly was found in a, in a vehicle at this point has no weight or bearing on what occurred and what those officers did that day. Now, more details are coming out about that teenager charged with killing two protesters, especially video showing officers apparently thanking him for patrolling the streets. What's your reaction to this behavior on part of the police? It's a boring behavior by the police department. 
And too often we have police agencies across this nation who are supportive and like-minded with some right-wing extremist organizations and some of these militia groups. And that just exacerbates the tensions between the police and the community. The police are there to objectively enforce the laws. And oftentimes you're in a position where you have two opposing sides. Your job as a professional is to apply and enforce the law equally and fairly. You can't give advantage to one side or another because you are closely aligned philosophically with that side. It's very disturbing what occurred that night, not just the, 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 the killings that occurred committed by the 17-year-old, but the lack of an appropriate professional police response. And there should be an extended uh, investigation into that, that uh, conduct by that police force and those individuals who are in charge. Now, in general, how do you think authorities should handle armed vigilantes in demonstration like this one? Uh, the, the police, I know, as, as a professional police officer, what you want to do is you want to really clear the field. You don't want any uh, individuals outside of the law enforcement community armed at the scene of this type of a conflict. It just causes additional problems and confusion. And it also increases the liability risk. Uh, for police officers themselves. Like I said, you want to be able to, uh, to apply the law firmly and fairly across the board, but you want to be the only armed people you want to see like this protest demonstration where emotions are already high are the police officers, the trained professional law enforcement people. Everyone else should be dis discouraged from, from uh, showing up there or, or outlawed from being there. It depends on the state and the, and the local laws, but ideally for police, you want a clean field to play with, and you want to be the only person that's on the that seat. Now, let's talk about the reaction from the White House. The president is planning on deploying federal agents. How can authorities de-escalate the violence? The president's knee-jerk reaction to any incidents involving demonstrations, especially demonstrations of this nature, demonstrations about the, the brutality and the criminality that, that are faced by black and brown communities, his knee-jerk reaction is to send in some additional federal resources, his encouragement to send in the National Guard at, at drop of a dime, et cetera. Uh, and I don't think that that is the appropriate response initially or automatically. It shouldn't be a reflexive response to get the National Guard or the feds involved in this situation. Local authorities should have the lead on that. If local authorities are unable to uh, uh, correct the situation or, or protect the, uh, the population to be responsible for the community, then you look for additional resources. But I think it's too knee-jerk, and it really sometimes will exacerbate the tensions on the street and cause more complications and problems than need Now, the president is speaking tonight. What kind of message would you like to hear from the President Trump? The message that I'd like to hear is the message that he's incapable of delivering, and that's a, a message of unity, of understanding, of compassion, and ex explaining and displaying humanity. He's incapable of that. It's clear. I don't think anyone's going to be fooled, you know, about what he's going to deliver. He's going to continue with this false narrative of quote-unquote law and order, which is really the furtherance of his white supremacist ideology. And, that, and everyone's going to be clear about that. So the message that he should deliver tonight should be one of uh, immediate action to deal with the grievances of a large population of American citizens, black and brown people, who have historically been abused uh, and killed by the police. That should be the response. 
he should express his condolences to those victims and those communities, and he should acknowledge and recognize the, the community trauma uh, that's being experienced by black and brown people across this nation. But as I indicated, he's incapable of that because he doesn't have the level of humanity necessary to deliver that message. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark Claxton of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance. Thanks again. Thank you. Now, meanwhile, protests continue across the country. A massive demonstration took place at the Alameda County Superior Court. Overnight, the protest was in response to the events in Kenosha. The Oakland Police Department says a fire has been put out and some damage was done to the building. The protesters also threw objects, including bottles and officers. Windows were also smashed in the Lake Merritt area. Authorities say about 700 people were involved in that protest. And thousands of people are expected to arrive in D.C. Friday for a major march organized by the Reverend Al Sharpton to protest police brutality. The march comes nearly three months after a nationwide protest sparked by the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. The march will also take place one day after President Trump accepts his party's nomination for president once again. And now to the Republican convention, Mike Pence in the spotlight with defense of President Trump, even as a series of crises show the country in turmoil. Edwin PT has more from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Last night, a beaming President Trump greeting supporters, flashing a thumbs up and posing for pictures. Many of his supporters not in masks or socially distancing. A surprise appearance to celebrate his Vice President Mike Pence officially accepting the party's nomination. I humbly accept your nomination to run and serve as Vice President of the United States. Pence delivering the speech of the night from Fort McHenry, the site of the bottle that inspired the national anthem. Speaking before a crowd of American heroes and first responders, Pence argued American values are on the line in this election. The choice in this election is whether America remains America. Pence, the head of the coronavirus task force, touted the administration's response to the pandemic, even as nearly 180,000 Americans have died. We built hospitals, surged military medical personnel, and enacted an economic rescue package that saved 50 million American jobs. And he acknowledged the other crises facing this country, addressing the unrest sparked by police shootings, but not the protesters' root concerns of the broader fight for racial justice. The violence must stop, whether in Minneapolis, Portland, or Kenosha. Too many heroes have died defending our freedom to see Americans strike each other down. We will have law and order on the streets of this country for every American of every race and creed and color. The vice president assuming the role of attack dog, saying Joe Biden possesses a danger to Americans, falsely claiming he wants to defund the police. The hard truth is, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. Night three was also a night for women, as the country marked the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. Outgoing White House advisor Kellyanne Conway with an appeal to the female voters the president sorely needs. He confides in and consults us, respects our opinions, and insists that we are on equal footing with the men. Carolina, a person that was scheduled to deliver a speech yesterday and didn't do so was Robert Unanue, the president of Goya Foods. We reached out to the uh, Trump re-election campaign and they said that he didn't do so because of logistical issues. Now, 
All the attention will remain today, fourth and last day of the National uh, Convention of the Republican Party. That will end up tonight at the White House, where President Trump will deliver a speech that officially will be accepting the nomination from the Republican Party. So now only 67 days away from the election, we can say the real fun is about to begin. Live in Washington, D.C., Carolina, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for that report live from D.C. And now a new report is in. Just over one million Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week. That's a sign that the coronavirus outbreak continues to threaten jobs, even as the housing market, auto sales and other segments of the economy are slowly recovering. The Labor Department reported that the number of people seeking assistance last week dropped by 98,000 from 1.1 million the week before. And welcome back to U News. The U.S. now reporting more than 5.8 million cases of coronavirus. Nearly 180,000 people have lost their lives. And now new questions about political pressure surrounding new testing guidelines. Rafael Rodriguez has the latest. After months of telling Americans that if they're exposed to someone with the coronavirus, that they should get tested, the CDC is now saying there's no need in those cases if you have no symptoms. But the New York Times reporting that the change was ordered from the top down by the president, who believes that bad numbers are meant to hurt his re-election campaign, and has said over and over that more testing drives up the numbers of COVID-19 cases. The White House denying that they forced the change. There is no direction from President Trump the vice president or the secretary about what we need to do when. Meanwhile, the nation's top infectious disease doctor, Anthony Fauci, says the move was done without him. He was under anesthesia in surgery when the guidance was approved. Across the medical community, doctors underline that as much as 40 percent of coronavirus patients show no symptoms. Infectious disease experts are outraged and heartbroken. One sharing online, our work on the silent spread underscores the importance of testing people who have been exposed to COVID-19 regardless of symptoms. This change in policy will kill. When you lose the trust in our public health agencies, whether it's CDC or FDA, um, that is, is a recipe for disaster. The governors of New York and California both say they're not listening to this new guideline. I don't agree with the new CDC guidance, period, full stop, and it's not the policy in the state of California. It totally violates public health standards and rationale uh, and just fosters his failed policy of denial. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. Thank you, Rafael, for that report. And a new rapid coronavirus test has just received emergency use authorization from the FDA. That test, made by Abbott, can detect the virus in 15 minutes. Studies done by that lab in several universities found this test correctly identifies positive cases 97% of the time and has an accurate negative reading 98% of the time. Abbott says the test is the size of a credit card and will cost $5. It also comes with a free mobile app to display results. Abbott says it expects to make 50 million tests a month by October. The question of who should be the first to get a potential vaccine after it is developed may have been answered by the CDC. On Wednesday, officials saying healthcare workers should be the first to get vaccinated. There are currently between 17 and 20 million essential healthcare workers in the U.S. 
After that, the federal agency says non-healthcare essential workers should be next, followed by adults with underlying medical conditions and then people over the age of 65. A doctor at the CDC says there might be a vote in September on the allocation of initial doses. Meanwhile, nearly six months into the pandemic, the economic crisis continues for so many people here in the U.S. Fabiola Galindo takes a look at how restaurants, owners, and workers in New York continue to be impacted. Empty kitchens that used to be packed with workers. It used to be three of us here. Now, it's just me. Dining areas with no tables or sound of the city's constant bustle. Up to 60 people used to fit in here, says the owner of Arepa Lady. But now I only have up to 20 people outside. This is how the majority of restaurants in New York City are surviving, with improvised seating set up outside as they lose clients, revenue and employees. I only have three workers now when I used to have 15. It's very difficult to tell people, no, I can give you work. More than 160,000 people in the bar and restaurant industry are still unemployed in New York City, and over 1,300 restaurants have closed permanently between April and July, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Only half of the more than 22,000 restaurants in New York City were able to set up tables outside. Many couldn't do it because of lack of space. Now they're worried of what's going to happen in the winter, starting in October. This restaurant has been in Leila Menashe's family for over 30 years, and she knows she can't depend on the prospect of good weather to keep customers coming in. We had a big storm yesterday and everything we had blew away. It's very difficult. Without a stimulus package on the way, things are becoming more dire. We see that some businesses now owe up to six months of rent, and for these places it can mean 30, 40 or even $50,000 of debt. With schools set to reopen in two weeks, some are wondering why not restaurants too? If we can send one-third of our children back to school in classrooms, why not think about new options and alternatives? They don't ignore the difficulties of opening indoor dining, but New York City has had several weeks with the lowest infection rate in the nation, and that's why they say they will keep putting pressure on the mayor, who hasn't set a date for the return of indoor dining. In New York, Fabiola Galindo, U News. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. And with so many immigrants serving in the U.S. military, the Trump administration suffering a major setback in trying to delay their path to citizenship. Ruiz Mejid has those details. They risked their lives serving the country, but the Trump administration has made more difficult their path to citizenship. Thank you very much. 
Now a federal court decided the rules imposed by the government are illegal and members of the military have the right to expedited naturalizations. The lawsuit was filed by the ACLU. Thousands of people who have been serving in our military under this administration who have been blocked from being able to naturalize because of this offensive policy now are able to apply for citizenship finally and get the citizenship that they were promised when they enlisted in the military. In time of war, an immigrant can start the naturalization process the following day after enlisting. But the Department of Defense considered it a security risk and stated they should wait at least a year. The court's decision puts an end to the wait. They were in a situation where they had enlisted and were serving, but the government had failed to provide the citizenship it promised, and it left them in a state of limbo. Um, many people, including some of our plaintiffs in this case, were actually set, lost immigration status during the time that they were serving in the military, such that they then became deportable because of this. It is not clear whether the decision will be appealed. The Department of Defense is not making any comments. In San Francisco, Luis Mejid. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then. <laughs>